Well, before I pray, I just want to make a special appeal to all of our church members. Uh, We have a very rare opportunity indeed this coming Wednesday night. Uh, When we gather together, not only just for our business meeting, we also will have Jeff and Rachel Gayhart and their family here with us from Indonesia. Uh, This is rare that Jeff is able to take time off to be here. Uh, we, We realize it's somewhat of an inconvenient time being on a Wednesday evening, but we want you to meet them. We want you to see the faces of the people that you support Uh, the people that are working on our behalf and helping arrange our trips when we go over there. We want you to be able to to meet them. So if you would, mark it on your calendars. Be here 6.30 on Wednesday night. Uh, Plus, we are also electing two elders, uh, and you need to participate that as well. So let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we come to you with open hands. We want to receive from you the blessings of your word. We pray, Lord, that as we work our way through this text, we pray that you will work in such a way uh, to allow us to see how huge, how magnificent, how wonderful, how sovereign you are. You are the creator God who is worthy of all praise and worthy of our worship. May we do so in word now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you. I am so grateful that you would join us on this Memorial Day weekend, especially when you consider how beautiful the weather is outside right now. And we are back in Genesis again this morning. And we are entering into a fresh new book today. If you remember from our extended outline in Genesis, I think we still have a few of those left on the table back on the vestibule. Apart from the prologue, the overall work consists of 10 sections or 10 books. And we can recognize these when we see the words in English, these are the generations of so-and-so. That phrase introduces a new section in Genesis. And this new book teaches us about the people groups that descended from Noah and, and how they became dispersed throughout the world. And it can be divided into two parts, the Table of Nations in chapter 10 and the Tower of Babel within the first nine verses of chapter 11. Now, it's my desire to cover the entirety of chapter 10 in one sermon. I say this because many men that I admire who have preached through Genesis usually take multiple sermons to cover this chapter. Victor Hamilton devotes 28 pages of his massive 400-page commentary on this passage alone. James Montgomery Boyce did three sermons on it, and I'm going to attempt it to do it in one. But please know that is not because there is a lack of fascinating information in this chapter. There is. People like me who study anthropology and history, we just love Genesis chapter 10. And we could go on and on about it in detail. But I've also found that for the non-historian, people like my wife and my children, Such minutiae tends to be tedious upon them when I go over such details over and over again. So in order to keep you from zoning out on me this morning, allow me just to hit the highlights of Genesis 10. If for no other reason, when we work through this passage, we at least got to enjoy watching Stephen attempt to pronounce all these difficult words through the passage. Brother, you did a marvelous job. You did. And you did it so colorfully, too, as well. 
I want to approach the chapter in three ways here. I need to give you a few preliminaries to the text so that you can understand what we're talking about. And then I want to work through the table of nations that are divided by Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Seth. Warning, that might be the boring part to you. And last, let me provide you with just a few theological insights into the passage. So if you're taking notes, that is preliminaries, the table in three sections, and the theological insights. So to begin, let's take a broad look at this passage. At one point in the 19th century, chapter 10 was considered to be just mere myth. Samuel Driver, the famous textual critic who co-wrote the most used Hebrew lexicon in the English language, the, the Brown Driver and Briggs, or the BDB as it's commonly referred, he wrote this, and I quote, the table of nations contains no scientific classifications of the races of mankind and no historically true account of the origin of races, end quote. The word race in that sentence plays a key role in his conclusion. Now hold on to that for the very end. But since that time, there has been much study and much research on current archaeology and historical documents. And presently, even the most hostile critics of the Table of Nations are inclined to acknowledge this chapter's extraordinary importance and its accuracy. I present this as an anecdote of an example of of people making vast assumptions about the Bible's errancy only to be proven wrong. Today, the table of nations has been proven to be accurate as a means of disbursement of many ancient people groups, though secular scholars would disagree with the divine oversight of such distribution. And by that, they might would say, yeah, this is how it happened, but I doubt God was involved. And perhaps it didn't happen through these specific men. Again, to them, this is just myth or folklore. Yet Moses tells us that it did come about through Noah. The known nations at the time of the Pentateuch had their origin from these three men. And comprehending this from the standpoint that these oral traditions were collected and assimilated at the time of the Exodus allows us to understand that that Moses was primarily writing to address the interest of the Hebrew people and those with whom they were getting ready to come into contact. So, for example, it wasn't important as to which of Noah's descendants might have crossed the Bering Straits into the Americas. And by the way, if they did, it certainly wasn't a 13th tribe of Jacob, as Joseph Smith and the Mormons claim. Moses' primary concern for the table was the history of the Hebrews and how that connected to the promised land of Abraham. And we should not press this text to say more than what it was intended. We should also note that the table is both a segmented genealogy and highly anachronistic. We've talked about genealogies before. Some are linear that reveals that person C was a direct descendant of person B who was a direct descendant of person A. That would be a linear genealogy. A segmented genealogy follows the family tree of one child for a bit, and then it comes back and it follows the line of the sibling, and then it comes back and does another sibling. And in between, we might get the genealogies of grandchildren or great-grandchildren, as we do here, before returning back to the primary groups of the siblings, one of Noah's sons. Therefore, this is a segmented genealogy. And it is anachronistic as Moses doesn't always refer to a descendant by their formal name. 
Sometimes he calls them by their known tribal name or their people group. With others, he may refer to them as the region in which they settled. For example, in verses 15 through 16, Moses refers to the descendants of Canaan as Jebusites and Amorites. Those are tribal names or what we might call in our present day people groups. The table is also comprehensive concerning time. It includes both the period before the Tower of Babel and afterwards. Moses also will refer to geographical areas that had been established by his own time, but not necessarily the time of the descendant. So you have Moses mention places in verse 11, like the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh. Those places might not have been known by those names when they were first originated. The table is highly anachronistic because it's written from Moses' time in history looking back. He wants his readers to know precisely whom and where he is referring. And keeping those details in mind will help us at the end understand what Moses is doing here. So the genealogy itself is divided by the three sons of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And each section begins with the name of the son and concludes with a similar phrase of their disbursements by clans, languages, and nations. Interesting enough, the table is composed of 70 nations, 14 fathered by Japheth, 30 by Ham, and 26 by Shem. The number 70 has significance in Hebrew as 7 times 10, which I'm going to address at the end. But it's good to mention that here. I also want to foreshadow the next book in Genesis. Um, It's there where we are introduced to Abraham. And knowing that by the time he arrives on the scene, there are already many nations established. But God is going to work through Abraham to establish a new and different kind of nation. Now, let me warn you, the next eight minutes or so might be the most tedious part for you. But I promise if you hang with me, you will see the relevance at the end here. The descendants of Japheth are given the smallest amount of attention. They're only given three verses with only two of Japheth's sons highlighted, those of Gomer and those of Javan. Now, I'm going to spare you much of the details. A good study Bible is going to provide you with that. But we know that the descendants of Madai in verse 2 are the Medes who will have their own brief empire between the Babylonian and the Persian period. Meshach is the originator of the people of Phrygia. Gomer's son, Ashkenaz, is the founder of the Scythians. And Javan is the father of the Greeks. And from his sons come the inhabitants of Cyprus through Katim, and the inhabitants of Rhodes through Dodonim. There is great irony in this section being the smallest, as it actually describes the largest of the people groups. The descendants of Japheth become the Indo-Europeans. They settle in what is now present-day Greece, Syria, and Turkey, and they spread northward into Europe and westward towards India. The blessing of Noah from chapter 9, verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth, proves true. I would say the vast majority of people within this room right now are descendants from Japheth. The next section starts with Noah's rebellious son. Ham. Like I said from last week in chapter 9, verse 24, it's unclear if Noah considered Ham to be the youngest from actual birth order or in terms of status. 
The segment of genealogy doesn't allow us to make a hard decision on this. But Ham's descendants are given the most space in the table. Most likely, that's due to two reasons. Number one, the descendants of Ham will be, give the descendants of Abraham the most trouble. And number two, the descendants of Ham's youngest son, Canaan, occupy the promised land of the Israelites, definitely future enemies of the Jews. These descendants of Ham show up all over the Old Testament. His son Cush is the father of the Nubians of Africa. Cush is known especially for being the ancestor of Nimrod, for which many words are devoted here. His name literally means, we shall rebel. And he was known as the first warrior with reputation. Now, we shouldn't read mighty hunter before Yahweh in verse 9 as a positive epitaph to be emulated. It may be that Nimrod appeared to get away with his shenanigans before God. And hunting might also refer to him hunting men, not just animals. Nimrod's descendants established cities that will become thorns in the side of Israel, what will become Babylon, Shinar, and Nineveh. Nimrod's repute is more along the lines of Billy the Kid than Davy Crockett here. But let's get back to verse 6. Cush's brother, Put, is the ancestor of the people that will inhabit Libya. And his other brother, Egypt, of course, is the nation that enslaved the Jews from which Moses just delivered. In verse 14, we discover Egypt is the ancestor of the Philistines, who are a thorn in Israel's side during the period of the judges and the early years of David. Most likely, many of our children are familiar with the story of Samson and the Philistines. And the youngest brother in verse 6, Canaan, is the grandson whom Noah cursed back in chapter 9, verse 25. From him come the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Gigershites, the Archites, and so on. These will be the people that Jacob's descendant, the, the 12 tribes of Israel at the time Moses recorded these words, must conquer to inhabit the promised land. We can see they populate some of the most fertile area of Mesopotamia. And if Numbers chapter 13, verses 28 through 33 is to be believed, these people groups were so formidable that the first generation of the Exodus believed they could not be conquered even with Yahweh's help. I also think it's no coincidence that Moses mentions that Gerar and Gaza and Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanite cities. They're going to feature later in Genesis as places of ill repute. Overall, the sons of Ham appear to inhabit much of North Africa and throughout greater Mesopotamia. And no doubt, due to Ham's sin against his father, they are portrayed in unfavorable light in the rest of Genesis. Starting in verse 21, we have the eldest of Noah's sons, Shem. He's referred to as the elder brother of Japheth, but Ham's name is conspicuously absent. Might we speculate that Ham had already begun to, to grow distant from his two brothers? Shem is where we get the word Semite or Semitic. As he was the ancestor of the Jews, remember, Shem was blessed by his father as having Yahweh as his God in chapter 9, verse 26. And highlighted among his descendants is his grandson Eber. The name Eber literally means ancestor. It means ancestor. And it is from him that we get the word Hebrew. Eber was the ancestor of the Hebrews. 
we might wonder, well, why emphasize him out of all these people? That is because when the world divides at the Tower of Babel, Eber has a son named Peleg, which means division. That's what his name means. It's a turning point in history when the Lord will disperse all the people throughout the world to be sectionalized. And it's through the line of Peleg that will produce Abraham, which we will discover in the final portion of chapter 11. When we read the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, we see both Eber and Peleg feature in it. So when all people groups are split apart, Eber's son, Peleg, becomes a new founding father to the Israelites, much like Seth and Noah did previously and Jacob is going to do later. It would appear the Semites settle interspersed in Mesopotamia as well as the Hamites. Now, once again, Moses' concern is to provide understanding to his immediate audience about whom they are going to encounter. I believe Genesis 10 to be 100% accurate. But its purpose is not to tell us how China or Indonesia or other Asian Pacific nations become inhabited any more than it is to tell us about the indigenous people of North and South America. But I have no doubt that they all descended from Noah as well. Even our DNA tells us that we are derived from a common ancestor of both a male and a female. So with all of this information, what theological insights might we gain? Let me propose four to you this morning. The chapter concludes with verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we should note the obvious first here. God is orchestrating mankind's original mission to be fruitful and to fulfill and to fill the earth. God is orchestrating mankind's original mission to be fruitful and fill the earth. That was what the original pair of humans were instructed to do before sin entered into the world. Genesis 1.28 was very specific. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing. And while this chapter communicates that humanity was being fruitful and were doing so at an amazing rate, the next chapter will reveal that they were being obstinate to fill the earth until the Lord confuses their languages. So let us not miss the point that what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. What Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. Nothing. And I mean absolutely nothing can thwart the great I am's purposes. Not even obstinate, sinful humans. And this should comfort us as well. When God says, I will save you by the blood of my son Christ, you are saved. Nothing can thwart his goals. Don't think so highly of yourself or your sin that you can lose your salvation when God says you can't. The Lord achieves all of his purposes, all of them. Second, Yahweh is the God of the nations. He is the God of the nations. The decision to confuse the languages wasn't plan B on God's part. At this point in the story, we might say there were no Jews yet. There are only Gentiles. And Yahweh is the God of the nations, not just the God of the Jews. He is sovereignly in control over all. 
Paul makes this point to the Greeks, the descendants of Javan. He told them in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not reside in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And here's our important point. And he made from one man, Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. He is not far from us because he is the God over all people. And it was his purpose that he have many nations bow down to him. This will be a repeated theme throughout Genesis. It is for his glory that he establishes clans and languages and nations. And despite such separation of language and geographical boundaries and nationalities, he will call a people unto himself. And here is why. The Apostle John has a vision of heaven which he records in Revelation chapter 7. This is what he wrote. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lord, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Remember, 70 nations, seven the number of completion times 10, Our diversity was not by chance. It is by design for the glory of God. He he was doing this to the praise of his glory through the diversity of the multitudes. Third, we need to see the table corrects our understanding of race and ethnicity. The table of nations corrects our understanding of race and ethnicity. Now, I'm going to spend a little time on this one. The entire chapter of chapter 10 is what we call an inclusio. It has two nice bookends highlighting its purpose. Verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nation spread on the earth after the flood. And then Paul's point in Acts 17 is that all of us have descended from Adam through Noah. Therefore, there is no such thing as races, plural. No such thing. That was a fallacy of interpretation in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century of looking at this as though there were multiple races. Biologically thinking, there is only one race, the human race, the descendants of Noah. And we must eliminate from our minds the construct that there are different races of men and women. That is simply not true. Biologically, we are the same. Yes, our DNA provides us with diversity in our appearances, but we are all humans and the same. Each of you, no matter what your body features were, You were all conceived with an egg and a sperm. Each of you were birthed into the world by a woman. 
Each of you are susceptible to the same diseases and dangers as the other. COVID should have proved that we were all the same. To prove my point, if I have an emergency and I go to the hospital and they tell me I need a blood transfusion, I promise you I'm not going to ask, well, so what color of skin was the person that donated the blood? What kind of blood was it? Is it Chinese or or Indian or Native American? That would be silly. There's no such thing as black blood or white blood or Chinese blood or American blood or Peruvian blood. There is only human blood. We must remove race as a dividing construct. It's simply not true. Because by implication, we diminish the power of the gospel, folks. All of us are descended from Adam. Therefore, all sin. Therefore, we all need one single Savior for all people, no matter your skin color. His blood saves us all. There is no difference in us as image bearers upon the earth. However, there is a diversity among us in ethnicity, one in which God is pleased. Unlike race, ethnicity is fluid. Your ethnicity can even change in your lifetime. I I have a close friend in Indonesia whose ancestor migrated to his island four generations ago. And he migrated there from China. And my friend has some facial features that look Chinese. However, he would tell you that he is fiercely Indonesian, and even beyond that, fiercely Sula. For Memorial Day, I always read the biography of a soldier. And I was reading the biography of World War II ace Francis Gabreski. His parents were Polish immigrants to America. Gabreski could speak fluent Polish. He ate Polish food, even served with a Polish fighter squadron in Britain before the Americans could build up their own fighter group in Europe. But despite his Polish background, Gabreski is fiercely American. And even beyond that, he would say he is fiercely Pennsylvanian, and he's proud of it. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or the language you speak or the food you eat. Ethnicity can be fluid. It can change. I want to be clear here. Ethnicity can change, but gender cannot. Gender is biological too. No matter what you cut off or add, you are what you were born with. But ethnicity can change. Now, I also want to be clear about this. I used to say some things when I was younger, like, I don't see color. I meant to convey with that that we're all the same human race and that nothing different in the way we look or speak should divide us. That's what I meant by saying with that. You might have said some similar things. But I didn't realize when I said that, that the other person might think that I don't appreciate their differences of who they were as God created them. That those differences were somehow superfluous to me. Now, I am learning to embrace the entire person and see that as magnificent. As an elder here at the church, I love hearing the testimonies of those that join our church. I love hearing about people's backgrounds. Some grew up in affluent neighborhoods and some in poverty. Some had abusive parents, some had loving parents, or a single parent. Some have accents, whether that be Hispanic, or a southern drawl, or even a a Scottish brogue. And yet, 
God saved all of us through the same gospel. The reason it will be so glorious around the throne, singing praises to the king in different accents, is because all of us have been saved by the glorious and precious blood of the Lamb of God. Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free, despite all of our differences, the gospel saved us. Those differences should be celebrated because they magnify the power of Jesus, not become dividing walls for us. The table of nations allows us to see that God celebrates and desires the diversity among one race to his glory. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And yet, the table of nations also reminds us, number four, that sin is still continuing to spread upon the earth. What started over again with Noah's drunkenness and Ham's disrespect of his father, what we would call little sins, is spreading into figures like Nimrod, who plants cities like Babylon and Nineveh, two of the most barbaric and cruel regimes that ever existed. And Egypt, who enslaves Jacob's descendants and produces the Philistines in cities like Gerar and Sodom and Gomorrah that are produced by the Canaanites. The sin that the flood was supposed to cleanse is still in existence and it is spreading. But the hope of God finally dealing with it will come through Shem and his descendants. I was reading James Montgomery Boyce and he found an outstanding quote from Martin Luther that summarizes this. Now, Luther didn't have the extensive historical research that we have available today. But he rightly concluded these words from this passage. It's a bit of an extended quote. Bear with me. Focus in on it. I think you'll appreciate it. Luther wrote, Whenever I read these names, I think of the wretched state of the human race. Even though we have the most excellent gift of reason... We are nevertheless so overwhelmed by misfortunes that we are ignorant not only of our own origin and the lineal descent of our ancestors, but even of God himself, our creator. Look into the historical accounts of all nations. If it were not for Moses alone, what would we know about the origin of man? Of this wretched state, that is, of our awful blindness, we are reminded by the passage before us, which gives us instruction about things that are unknown to the whole world. What do, uh, what do we have about the very best uh, part of the second world besides words? Not to mention the first one, which antedated the flood. The Greeks wanted to have the account of their activities preserved. The Romans likewise. But how insignificant this is in comparison with the earlier times concerning which Moses has drawn up a list of names in this passage. Not of deeds, but of names. Hence, one must consider this chapter of Genesis a mirror in which to discern what we human beings are, namely creatures so marred by sin that we have no knowledge of our own origin, not even of God himself, our creator, unless the word of God reveals these sparks of divine light to us from afar. Then what is more futile than boasting of one's wisdom, riches, power, and other things that pass away so completely? Therefore, we have reason to regard the Holy Bible highly and to consider it a most precious treasure, 
This very chapter, even though it is considered full of dead words, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle and to the end of all things. From Adam, the promise concerning Christ is passed on to Seth. From Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to this Eber, from whom the Hebrew nations received its name as their heir, from whom the promise about the Christ was intended in preference to all other peoples of the world. This knowledge of the Holy Scripture reveals this to us. Those who are without them live in error uncertainty and boundless ungodliness for they have no knowledge about who they are and from whence they came. It's a powerful quote. I want you to do me a favor, if you will. Would you hold your Bible in your hands? And, and if it's in your phone, that's okay. Hold your phone. All right, that's all right. Hold your phone, but hold your Bible in your hands. And parents, if you don't, grab one of the pew Bibles and put it in your kids' hands. I tremble when I think of what I'm holding right now. These are the very words of God. If you're holding them in your phone, I know your phone is powerful. You, You could look up information in a nanosecond for some of you. My service, not so good. But you could do it in a heartbeat. But despite such power of even a phone, nothing is more powerful than what you are holding in your hands. Do you realize your greatest problem is your sin? Because one day you're going to die, as we read in in, in Acts chapter 17, and you're going to stand before the Lord in judgment, and you will be asked, what means do you have to justify yourself before me? Me, a holy God. And this Bible, this word, communicates to mankind about a holy God that sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, to come to the world, to enter into it, to become flesh, so that he might become a substitute in our place. That God poured out his wrath upon him instead of us for all of us who believe in him by faith. But not only that, but that we get his right standing before God, that we can stand before him justly and be welcomed as his son. This is the most powerful thing that exists on the earth right now. And his church living by it and living according to it and proclaiming this message is changing the world. It is calling from all of these descendants of the table of nations a people to himself. Remember at the throne there is every tribe, every tongue, every nation standing before the Lord. And this is what is drawing them, the gospel, the glorious progressive revelation of Christ Jesus that you hold in your hands. It is how the world will change. Knowing knowing how powerful this book is, knowing how powerful the app on your phone is, what will you do? Will you study it? Will you memorize it? Will you allow it to transform you into the image of his son, 
so that you might be a proper image bearer on the earth? Will you share it with others? That's what you're holding in your hands. It almost makes you feel like, man, I I don't know if I can drive home today because I need to hold my Bible in my hand. (laughs) If you feel how precious that is, then the Lord has done his work on your soul. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that it just seems like this week with all the things that are going on coming up into the following week, this is a perfect time for us to have this message because today we should be celebrating Pentecost, the day in which all people that were in Jerusalem heard the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And that through that, Lord, you began to build your church from among people, from all nations. And that, Lord, that task is not yet completed. You are a good and gracious God who is giving time after time after time to to have children be born into the world so that you might draw them to yourself. And we are seeing the multitude of nations, the multitude of ethnicities, the multitude of people groups and languages, they are being converted and they are being transformed by the power of the gospel that comes from this book. And that in that, Lord, you are doing a marvelous work. We cannot thank you enough for the graciousness of what you have extended to us. So, Lord, let us not take it for granted. Let us take full advantage of this gift that you have given us. That, Lord, we would cherish it. We would read the word. We would memorize the word. We would allow the word to teach us and change us. And then we would proclaim that word to others so that they may be saved. They might find the hope. And we pray, Lord, that as we do this, we would do it all the more in a pace of endurance recognizing that part of our endurance, our suffering, our sacrifice that you call us to in this word is to show how worthy the gospel is. So allow us to persevere in it as well. And finally, Lord, I do pray that the person that might be hearing what we've just heard, what we just said, that if you were removing the veil from their eyes, I pray, Lord, you're going to grant them the courage to be able to seek out one of your precious children, that they may say, how might I also enter into the family of God? How might I place my faith in Christ? And that, Lord, great meaningful dialogue would happen, and you would save that soul. We know that only comes by you and by your power, and you were so gracious to dispense it to us. So allow us, Lord, to realize that while the task is unfinished, you are the one that empowers us. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.